So, um, so that's how, um, that's how it felt to me that there was no color in my life. But alcohol, you know, just put a drop of paint, you know, into my world and and helped me that way. And all this was going on the whole time and I was still going to AA and going in and out of rehabs. Um, but it was never picked up on uh, that I had a mental health issue. Addiction and mental health, two of the most fragile aspects of the human condition. If you aren't mindful of either of them, both have the capacity to break up families and ruin lives. But mental health and addiction don't just exist separately in a vacuum. In many circumstances, they can inform and worsen each other. Say, for example, you're suffering from an anxiety disorder and to cope, you drink excessive amounts of alcohol. This relationship can breed dependence and subsequently addiction. Add to this that having the two problems at the same time can potentially scupper your access to already under-resourced mental health and addiction services and the issue only becomes more bleak. The media shorthand for this relationship between addiction and mental health is dual diagnosis. But in reality, the relationship is more complicated than a mere one-two causation. And issues with substance abuse and mental health can permeate and erode even the most seemingly idyllic family lives. Enter Valerie Farraher. Married 31 years and a mother of five, Valerie's life seemed perfect. You can basically picture the picket fence and smell the freshly cut grass. But behind the perfect image, all was not well. Valerie was suffering from an undiagnosed mental illness. And as time wore on, Alcohol became her sole source of solace. This led her down a destructive path that nearly cost her her life. When I had my fourth child, um, I got this pregnancy diabetes, which um, made me balloon up my weight. And uh, one of the signs is that you have big babies. And I hadn't had any big babies till then, so this pregnancy diabetes was a relatively new thing to me. I hadn't had a weight problem, and so when I delivered, I was 18 stone. And um, it was a big shock to me because I had an emergency section. And um, that brought on some postnatal depression, which I didn't understand about. I mean, it's not like now where you can just hop on Google and or ask Siri... Um, and I, I thought, you know, the the feelings of depression are, um, especially postnatal depression, is, you know, not wanting to be around your kids, not, you know, not wanting to get up in the morning, um, and um, just struggling to maintain your daily your daily life, your daily chores, your your daily routine. And uh, I'm sitting there and wondering what the hell you you're done with your life. After having her fourth baby, Valerie lost motivation. She was frustrated with her home life. She resented her children. She felt her life was without purpose. She didn't know this, but she was suffering from postnatal depression. She wanted to keep up the facade, that image of the perfect wife. And to placate herself, she'd treat herself with movies and junk food. Until sometime later, when she found a new solution. A friend popped by one day and... um, uh, we happened to have, have have some alcohol in the house left over from an event, and um, 
she had a drink problem and actually she still has a drink problem to this day but she asked for a drink and uh, anyway I had one with her cutting a long story short I had one with her and I can remember exactly where I was sitting how it tasted because it was vile it was gin and tonic um, uh, and I can remember after I drank it I was uh, standing in the hallway I was going down to the bathroom and I just stood in the kitchen door between the kitchen door and the hallway and I went oh my god this is so good now I know what I'll do when I don't want to do any cleaning or the kids are really getting on my nerves or you know I'm having trouble sleeping at night all I have to do is have a little nip of this it'll help my mood and um and I'll be away with it. And I made an absolute conscious decision. I didn't understand anything about addiction. There's about six different ways that the relationship between substance use, be it alcohol, be it non-prescribed drugs, and prescribed drugs for that matter, uh, and mental health difficulties kind of relate to each other that can bring about dual diagnosis. Liam McGowan is the head of nursing at Dublin City University. While his focus is on mental health, he has a background in sociology, community development and evolving college programmes to meet practice needs. So at one level, if if I have got a mental health problem and as a result of my mental health problem, I am, for example, drinking or taking drugs to alleviate either the symptoms of that mental health problem. So say, for example, I might be taking a cannabis to try and reduce the intensity of hearing voices. A lot of people will do that. Or I might be taking cocaine or alcohol to try and get over the side effects of the drugs I'm being given for my mental illness, which are absolutely camatosing me. What's happening is there's a relationship happening there. And in some ways, that's me trying to cope with either my mental health symptoms or the treatment for my mental health problems. At that level, people just do that. That's not necessarily saying they've got a dual diagnosis. It's when then they become dependent on each other. It's when I overuse my cannabis or overuse my cocaine to counteract some of the symptoms of the mental health problems or the treatment of mental health problems. And then a relationship starts evolving where the maladaptive approach means that I become addicted. I have to take more cocaine, more cocaine. Then I start to take more cannabis, perhaps. And then because of my vulnerability to, say, uh, having uh, hearing voices or to becoming paranoid, Taking cannabis might increase the possibility of me becoming paranoid, whereas if I didn't have that vulnerability in the first place, I mightn't get paranoid. So for me, I had to have that vodka shot or whatever shot I was taking at the time. And it was always just a little bit at the start because I knew that if I didn't take something my body wouldn't lift me off the chair to do it. Do you know, we've all been there and we've all gone, oh my God, especially if you're really tired or you've been to, um, you know, on a busy weekend or been away for the weekend and you come back and you know you have stuff to do and you're like, I'm stuck to the chair, I can't get up. Well, it was like that 24-7. It was like, and that's depression. But again, I didn't know what that was like. It was this persistent, constantly reinforcing interaction between alcohol and depression that led Valerie down the path of dual diagnosis. Both issues became entwined, enmeshed and dependent on each other. As the years passed, Valerie attempted rehab multiple times. She even enjoyed it. 
She was an active member of AA, helping organise and run meetings. But every time, it proved only to be a temporary solution. The 12-step programme has no mental health procedures. Valerie would find herself back drinking every time, because her underlying mental health issues weren't being addressed. Her condition continued to worsen until finally she reached breaking point. So I just figured, do you know what? I'm not going to get sober. My family were suffering desperately. It was, te- it was like I, even though I was numbed out a lot with alcohol, they were the ones that were like, did you ever see them meerkats that stand there with their heads and they're constantly observing? That was what my whole family had to live like on a daily basis. It was like, when's the next blow going to be? When's, you know, what's she going to do next? Because I would do so many dangerous things. And um, and I decided that's it. I'm bailing out. I can't do this to them anymore. I can't do this to me anymore. Because we were in, like I hadn't been paying the mortgage. There was a lot of debt. And back then you could put things on the book in the local shop and things like that. So there was a lot of that. Um, my husband had to sell land in order to cover half the stuff that had happened. It was just bedlam. I decided that, that I was going to take my life. I had gone to town, I'd bought bottles and bottles of drink and at this stage I was kind of left to my own devices. If they found it, they'd spill it away, but if they didn't, they wouldn't look for it anymore. I said I'd stay back in the bedroom, we were sleeping downstairs, I'd stay in the bedroom and there I would stay until I was going to die. And I, because of my time in rehab and AA, I knew... Um, you know about alcohol poisoning and all that kind of stuff so that was my intention but nothing was working and I think it was on the second or third day I can't remember now was it second or third day um, I decided that you know I, I became desperate because I was like I'm going to run out of drink and you know this isn't working so I decided to hang myself the funny thing about um suicide and doing something like that is like I was intoxicated when I made that decision even though I felt like I wasn't drunk at all I was intoxicated when I made that decision Um, but also um, like when you're thinking of things like suicide you know there's mental health issues going on there but um, when I went to hang myself so um I hung myself and um, I actually changed my mind uh, halfway through because uh, I'd just seen an image of my mother and um, then my father kind of came into play and it wasn't this, my life flashed in front of my eyes. It was all the damage I I was leaving behind that flashed in front of my eyes. And I felt first that I was releasing my husband and that he'd be able to have a decent wife and I was going to release my kids and yeah they were going to be mad but they'd get over it but my parents had already buried a child and that it destroyed them my my death destroyed them so I changed my mind but I couldn't get myself back I was already hanging and I'd passed out I, I, I eventually passed out Valerie awoke on the floor She had come dangerously close to losing her life, but she had survived. Ultimately, it was the love and support of her family that not only kept her alive, it's what set her on the path to recovery. 
because uh, as bad as I ever got with the drink and things like that and being sent back to the room and to get to hell out of the kitchen, they, my husband always took care of me. He knew on some level I was sick. And he used to say whenever I went to rehab or whenever we were sitting in front of yet another counsellor or anything like that, he would say, and these were his exact words, there's something else wrong. There's something else wrong with her. And uh, they would always disagree with him and say, no, she's an alcoholic. When she quits drinking, she'll be able to, she'll get her life together. And his argument then was, but she can quit drinking. She just can't stay off it. And nobody ever mentioned the words dual diagnosis. Nobody ever talked about mental health, nothing. The focus was always on the drink. Even after I give up the drink, there was still no talk about, you know, well, come back to the mental health services or anything like that. Valerie was very lucky. Carol Moore is from Dual Diagnosis Ireland, a registered charity that aims to raise awareness of how mental health and addiction should be treated together. She had something which is common to all people who are lucky uh, in the system. She had family support. Her husband had been told to throw her out of the family home. But he kept saying to doctors, there's something wrong here. There's something else happening. Her 17-year-old daughter screamed at the staff in A&E that they weren't leaving until her mother got help. So people who have family support were prepared to write letters, talk, shout... It's a concept called recovery capital. They're much more likely to survive, whereas people without that level of support, they're, if they're lucky, they end up in prison. And if they're unlucky, they end up dead. So anyway, I, I, st- I went there. I kept the appointment and I went there and my husband came with me. And we sat down in front of a a psychiatrist and he was just on the verge of retiring he was like six months off retirement again my husband said well you know I think there's something else wrong and he started nodding okay after we told our story you know we gave him the rundown about what's happening he says okay Valerie the first thing I want you to do is and he said I'm going to say it in your language so you'll never forget it and I was like okay and he said I want you to get the fuck out of AA And both myself and my husband were like, (gasps) you know, like, oh my God, you know, it's like blasphemy. And Tomas looked at me and I looked at Tomas and then we both looked at the doctor and I was like, why? And he said, because you haven't grown and you will never grow there, you know. And he explained what I was talking about. It became my norm. My norm became addiction and pain and all these other things that came with it. And um, he said... Um, you know, after he'd backtracked with us and everything, he started asking questions that nobody else had asked. He was like, what was she like before she was, you know, when she's not drinking? And Tomaso, now he, Tomaso used to get asked that, what she'd like when she's not drinking. Um, that's when he brought it right back and he said, I think you've had postnatal depression since you had your cesarean section, since your fourth baby was born. And even Tomas started connecting dots and saying, yeah, I think that may, might be when it started to go wrong. And uh, he said, I want to put you on a medication um, called Lexapro, he said, for a little while. And I was like, whatever, you know, because I was still in that, I'm not going to get sober. You know, this is just another guy sitting in front of me, you know. But then something miraculous happened. It worked. 
After a few weeks, Valerie found that her cravings and compulsions were manageable. If she felt the urge to drink, she'd go to her room, read a bit of a book, take a short nap, and wake up without the need to drink. Valerie had gotten very lucky. She'd gotten the right advice at the right time, which set her on the track to recovery. But not everyone gets that moment of luck. And how are we, as a society, equipped to help those caught at the intersection of addiction and mental health issues? Um, I, I think there's no single solution. We need to look at legislation in the area. The way uh, we don't implement the legislation that's there correctly. It's down to individual psychiatrist opinion as to how people are actually sectioned. We need regulation, legal regulation of addiction centres so that their treatments become more focused on evidence. And we need the media to maybe adopt new guidelines around reporting of mental health and alcohol issues because they're contributing to the problem at the moment. There's no one solution, but there is a solution, I think. Even no wrong door um, where no matter what, which service you present yourself in, that they have to look after you and find you a service and not just abandon you. Naructa's party report called for a no wrong door solution um, to mental health, and I think that could be helpful as well. So it is a problem that is solvable. It's not as complex as many people make out. There has to be peer support workers as part and parcel of any approach um, to dual diagnosis service provision. And whatever professionals are working there need to not come from addiction or mental health services because then they're not able to meet the needs of the people with dual diagnosis. They need to have this joined up way of thinking, understanding and a cultural approach to dual diagnosis which is different than just coming from addiction or mental health alone. There isn't a huge amount of leadership around this in terms of trying to solve the issues and people working in the system are frazzled, they're burnt out and they don't have the time to do the campaigning that's needed to effect change. The second and most important thing is dual diagnosis gives you a double stigma, gives you double issues. So in order for people to be able to step outside of social isolation and stigma uh, and even engage in recovery in the first place, because services aren't able to respond to their needs, we need to have a situation where they can meet a service that's community-based because part of what they need to do is the community needs to be able to embrace people with dual diagnosis without stigmatising them and discriminating them. So the community needs to, the service needs to be in the community. I think what services need to do is work more along the lines of harm reduction with people who are showing diagnosed dual diagnosis. Um, but until they get the assessments right, nothing's going to work. You have to properly assess people um, and just asking about their drinking and what they're like when they're drinking and oh, you're drinking and driving and look at all the money you're spending on drinking. Look at, they know that, you know. You're preaching to the converted when you're telling them things like that. Uh, what you need to find out really is, you know, what kind of a personality they had before, what happened in their lives. Are they happy in their marriage? What's their living circumstances like? Everyone's story is different. Valerie had the support system. Her husband and children stayed by her side through her darkest moments. And ultimately, she found the treatment that was right for her. But if every story is different, they can't all have happy endings. And others won't share Valerie's fate. Addiction and mental health need a unified, holistic system of treatment, which isn't in place at the moment. 
In other words, the whole person needs to be addressed. Each issue can't be resolved in isolation. But in society and the media, a stigma surrounds both mental health and addiction, so the path to meaningful reform is obscured. So what's the solution? Like treating a patient with mental health and addiction issues, addressing dual diagnosis on a societal level requires stripping the issue back and dealing with the root cause, which is the public's perception of these issues and, consequently, the political will to enact meaningful change. If we address how we think about these problems, that might set us on the path to fixing them. You've been listening to Hand in Hand, Diagnosing Dual Diagnosis. It was produced and presented by me, Jesse Melia, and was a School of Media production for TU Dublin.